Please bow your heads with me once more as we ask the Lord's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you told your servant Jeremiah that you are watching over your word to perform it. You say that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it discerns and judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. You say that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth, and that even though all humanity is fading like grass, your word remains forever. So we pray now, would you, by your spirit, again, speak your word to us, where your servants are listening? For Jesus' sake, amen. Eyewitness testimony, as I'm sure you are aware, is crucial in a courtroom. Whether that witness provides an alibi for the innocent or whether it convicts the criminal, it matters what people have seen and whether they're willing to go on record as having seen it. Evaluating sworn testimony is equally important. In fact, when you have multiple eyewitnesses testifying under oath to the same event, then the burden of proof shifts to those who would try to undermine their consistent testimony. You have to discover convincing reasons or evidence that such consistent witnesses would lie under oath. And why would they come forward with false testimony? What evidence contradicts their testimony? What would such a false witness stand to gain from lying? Were they coerced, perhaps? Or do the circumstances of their testimony actually prove that they are testifying to their own hurts or against their own better interests? In that case, their testimony becomes all the more reliable and believable. This morning in John 20, we read and evaluate eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, John 20 is on page 906 of the Pew Bible. Big numbers are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take the Pew Bible home with you as our gift to you. John wants you to see this passage as eyewitness testimony. He wants you to see what he's writing as eyewitness testimony. He wants you to see his whole gospel as eyewitness testimony because here in chapter 20, he repeats the verb saw so many times. So we're going to read this story kind of piecemeal as we go so that we can relive the discovery of the empty tomb with the disciples themselves. Because as we'll see, the whole thing progresses by stages of who sees what 
And it's all building to a climax, both in the narrative and in John's own relationship with us as readers. Because we're seeing these things in the text as they're seeing them in history. And John wants us to respond like they did, with faith. So follow along with me as we begin by reading chapter 20, verses 1 through 2 in the Gospel of John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now this Mary Magdalene was the last one at the cross in chapter 1925, and now she's the first one at the tomb to witness the stone rolled away. It's a measure of her devotion to Jesus. Last one at the cross, first one at the tomb. But a tombstone back then was not just a headstone. It was a huge stone disc that you would have put upright that served as a seal to a tomb that would have been cut out of a cave. It would have been too heavy for one person to remove. would have been impossible to remove from the inside. But there's an element of surprise in Mary's testimony that bears the mark of authenticity. She runs and blurts out to Peter and John the first fear that comes into her mind once she has seen the tombstone rolled away. Someone stole the body, and the disciples don't know where it is. She did not see this coming. And she doesn't hope for the best. She fears for the worst. We keep going in verses 3 through 5. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. So we're getting closer and closer. John records that he and Peter ran together to the tomb. A woman's lone testimony was not admitted as adequate in Roman courts. So Mary Magdalene's testimony to the tombstone rolled away would not have stood up in a Roman court. Only male witnesses would do, and Jewish law in Deuteronomy required that a matter had to be established by two witnesses. That may be why Mary herself ran to get both Peter and John. She knew, I got to get two people here really quick, and they better be men, because something big's going on here, and I want this to stand up. So now, John saw the linen cloths lying there with no corpse wrapped inside. What is going on? What has happened? But if you were reading or listening all the way through John's gospel in one sitting, this would remind you of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Lazarus, you'll remember, came out of the grave, but still bound in the linen grave clothes. Jesus had to tell somebody, unbind Lazarus from his grave clothes. But at Jesus' resurrection, the linens are just lying there empty. 
No one had to unbind Jesus. And yet John is still so dumbfounded that he just stands there at the entrance of the tomb, looking in without going in. But of course, Peter goes further in verse 6, because Peter always goes further. Peter sees the folded face cloth in verses 6 through 7. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter finally arrives, rushes right down into the tomb, and he saw not just the linen body wraps lying empty, he saw the face cloth not dumped in a pile with the rest of the linens as you would expect if somebody had stolen the body in a hurry. A tomb raider doesn't take the time to sit there and fold the face cloth and put it down. If somebody stole the body, they had a weird way of doing it. They were certainly at their leisure, not afraid of getting caught. That doesn't add up. The face cloth is neatly folded up separate like somebody took their time to do it very calmly and on purpose, almost as if they wanted it to be discovered just that way. Verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw... And believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Now John comes in to see the folded face cloth. Now if John is trying to make himself look good here, again, he's got a funny way of doing it. He is not complimenting himself here. He is kind of critiquing himself. Like, well, he would, he would have been content just to see the the grave clothes lying empty, but Peter's the one who actually went in and discovered the face cloth, and then John goes in, kind of following behind Peter. But verse 9 kind of stumps us, doesn't it? What do you make of verse 9 and how it relates to verse 8? He saw and believed for because... As yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What in the world? What, what does that mean? What's the connection there? Well, all throughout John's gospel, you'll remember, John has presented sign-based faith as okay. It's better than no faith at all, but as kind of inadequate. It's actually inferior to word-based faith. As if, oh, you got to see something? i got to prove it to you? Why don't you just take Jesus' word for it? Why don't you believe what Jesus says? So John is kind of critiquing himself here. John is admitting that even he himself finally believed only based on the empty tomb, even though he should have understood that the whole Old Testament preached the need for the Messiah to rise from the dead before the Messiah ever rose from the dead. He should have believed the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. I finally believed when I saw the folded linen head wrap, but that's only because I didn't understand my Bible. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, what he's telling you as a 21st century Christian is you can believe based on the Old Testament without having to need to see the empty headcloth. Your faith can be better than John's faith, at least at the start of John's faith. Yet in verse 10, Peter and John don't stay there at the tomb to see what they might see next. I mean, man, if this were you, wouldn't you want to like kind of hang out a little bit? Like, what's going to happen now? Who's going to show up? Or maybe they left because they were afraid that somebody was going to show up like the Romans or like the Jews who didn't like Jesus and wanted him executed in the first place and might have found them there at the tomb and crucified them because they thought or would have accused them of stealing the body. But they go back, remarkably, to their homes, the text says, (laughs) just to their own interests, to their own mundane life. Well, Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. Mm -mm. Time for lunch. What? (laughs) What? You're going home? Home. You think home is the place to go after this? Unbelievable. Again, this is not self-flattering testimony. But Mary is the one who stays. And isn't this interesting? I mean, if the Bible is misogynist, it's got a really funny way of doing it, right? Like, Mary's the one who stays. Mary's the one who's like, yeah, I'm not leaving. And the guys are like, "Ah, I'm out of here. I don't know what's going on, but this is kind of freaky. And Mary's really glad that she stayed. Look there in verses 11 to 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. From that, it's clear that Mary had run back to the tomb with Peter and John after having ran to get them. Now, they go back home, but Mary stays. She was still weeping outside the tomb, still assuming somebody stole the body. It's like she didn't realize what John saw and believed. Or maybe it's like John didn't tell her what he believed about what he saw. Even though she was standing right outside. But after they left, She went into the tomb herself and saw something different. She saw two angels dressed in white, not black. White is not the color you wear to a funeral or to a wake. But they're wearing white in a tomb because it's empty. And they're sitting at either end of the place where Jesus had been laid as if they wanted her to look at the empty space in between. Why are you weeping, Mary? Yet all she can do is relate her own misunderstanding to them. Well, somebody stole my Lord's body. I mean, even seeing two angels. I mean, think about that. She's seeing angels. She must not realize they're angels. Or if she realizes they're angels, it is just not clicking with her. She is too wrapped up in her own grief. So what is it going to take? Who is it going to take to get through to Mary? 
Look there in verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw, ha ha, Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So Mary actually sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ without seeing him for who he is. Isn't that amazing? You could see the risen Lord Jesus and not even know who you're looking at. And remember, Mary had just seen him hanging on the cross a couple days ago. So Jesus asks her the same question the angels asked her. Why are you weeping? But then he goes further and asks, whom are you seeking? (laughs) What an ironic question for the risen Christ to ask Mary Magdalene. Whom are you seeking? Come on, Mary. Whom are you seeking? What's a garden tomb? So she thinks she's looking at the gardener and just assumes he's the one who removed the body. After all, the tomb didn't belong to anyone she'd have known personally. It didn't belong to one of the disciples that were publicly following Jesus around. So she's probably thinking the gardener came to remove the body because it was laid in a tomb where it didn't belong. And he was the steward of the garden. And so he just came and took care of it. And she makes an offer that she'd have had a lot of trouble fulfilling. I'll take the body. Wait a minute. Uh, excuse me? Oh, you're going to take the body. You're going to carry Jesus' dead weight. Mary must be awfully sturdy. (laughs) Or else she just kind of doesn't realize what she's offering to do because she is still grieving so desperately. It's a gesture of her devotion, though, but also of her ignorance. She has no idea that she is telling the risen... I mean, this is meta. If there was ever a meta moment, this is meta. Like, you're telling the risen Lord Jesus, I will carry your body, your dead body, to where I can express devotion to it properly. (laughs) Wow. She really doesn't know who she's talking to. So if you can see the risen Christ and still not know it's him then what's it take to see him for who he is? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. I don't know how he said it. I wish I knew the tone of voice that he said that in. Maybe he said, Mary. Like he was a little disappointed that that she didn't recognize him. Or maybe he said, Mary. Like, come on, (laughs) wake up. Or maybe he said, Mary. I don't know how he said it. I'd love to have been there to hear how he said that. But somehow, he said her name, and immediately, that's what makes her recognize him. Because as soon as, she calls, as Jesus calls her by name, she sees who it is that's talking with her, and she worships him. It reminds you of John 10. The sheep hear my voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. By name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He has to call you by name. 
And then, only then, does Mary testify to seeing Jesus in verses 17 to 18. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means my teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So in verse 17, it's clear that Mary could not contain herself. She must have hugged Jesus somehow because he has to tell her not to get too attached. Let go of me. Because soon, he's going to be ascending to God the Father. So he tells her to go back to the disciples, his brothers, he calls them, to tell them he's getting ready to go back to the heaven that he came from. And when she tells them, she puts it in the perfect tense, not I saw the Lord, but I have seen the Lord. When you make that distinction, you're saying something, right? You're you're making a, a difference. It's not just, oh, I saw something in the past. I have seen. Therefore, that has continuing results. I have seen something that I can never unsee. I have already seen it. I didn't just see it. I have seen it. Nothing can take it away. Past completed action, continuing results. I have seen him, and this changes everything. Notice, too, Mary Magdalene is the one who gets the honor of seeing Jesus himself first and being the very first evangelist of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of John. Again, so much for Christianity being misogynist. Only then, in verses 19 and 20, does Jesus appear to the men. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So later that evening, disciples have locked themselves in a room because they feared Jewish persecution because they probably thought the Jews were going to prosecute them for stealing the body of Jesus and that kind of prosecution may have led to their crucifixion too. Whatever the case, they're afraid to go out at night, so they lock the doors. But all of a sudden, the risen Jesus is standing right there in the middle of them. And he gives them something else to see. Now again, this is pretty imaginative if it didn't actually happen. And I mean, it's an odd thing to invent in order to lie about. Like, really? You're going to try to convince everybody that Jesus appeared to you Inside locked doors, like that's your lie? I mean, I think I could do better than that. He shows them his wounds. They're overjoyed to see him. But once again, verse 20, John emphasizes, they saw the Lord. They saw him. And this time it's plural. They all saw him. 
Well, almost all of them. Jesus sends the disciples to testify to what they have seen in verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So while Jesus is with them that night, he commissions them into the world. As his Father had commissioned him into the world, he wants them to continue his work to testify to what God did in and through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Here the disciples become the apostles, the sent ones. Those literally sent and authorized by the risen Christ to testify to the forgiveness of sins that can only be found in Jesus' blood and righteousness. He empowers them for their mission by breathing his own spirit on them. But this is not just empowerment. It is that, but it is more. It's regeneration. This Greek word for breathe only appears six times in the Old Testament, and two of those are in Genesis 2-7, where God breathed into man the original breath of life. And Ezekiel 37-9, the vision of the valley of dry bones, where God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. You remember what that vision was about, the regeneration of all of Israel, the promise of the new covenant, and what the giving of the Spirit would produce, new life. So Genesis 2-7 is initial generation. Ezekiel 37-9 is regeneration. And here Jesus breathes on them to give them the Holy Spirit as the power of the new creation and the new birth in their hearts, just as he had promised and told Nicodemus that he needed in John 3. It's the command and commission of the Christ that authorizes these particular men as his witnesses. And it is the Spirit of Christ, his life, his wisdom, his holiness, his truth, living in them, that empowers their witness and authorizes it. Jesus says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld again. Boy, that's a quiet time stopper if there ever was one, isn't it? What in the world does that mean? I don't know, time for breakfast. Well, this doesn't mean that they now have unbridled control over who gets forgiveness and who doesn't. They're not just kind of deciding it willy-nilly. I don't really like that guy, so you don't get forgiveness. That's not what's going on here. But it does mean that their authorized message about the risen Jesus and their empowered mission for the risen Christ, backed up by their testimony, by their own two eyes, is what everyone must respond to in order to gain forgiveness in Christ and from Christ. Jesus is sending them into the world as his authorized messengers, apostles, ambassadors, with his own authority to continue his mission of forgiveness of sins by proclaiming his message of forgiveness of sins in his own blood, life, death, righteousness, resurrection. So to deny the apostles' message about Christ or to reject their mission for Christ is to miss out on forgiveness by Christ. But that's what every Christian believes. But as we notice, not all the disciples were there that night, were they? Verse 24. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And never is the right translation. It's a strong negative. I will never, ever believe what you are saying just happened unless I stick my hand into his side. It ain't happening. Thomas is the only one not gathered with the eleven to see Jesus the first time he appeared and to receive the Spirit together with them. Look at what he missed out on. So the ten testified to him just as Mary had testified to them in the perfect tense. We have seen the Lord and this changes everything. But Thomas is as skeptical as they come. Uh Uh-uh. Your word's not good enough for me. No, 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 no. I will never believe this. How <laughs> would Jesus broke my heart. He died. He's dead. I'm never going to believe this unless I'm the one to see him. And if I touch him, I will, I will not believe it. I'm too far gone. I don't, I don't have time for this. I don't have a heart for this. I can't, I can't hurt like this. I've, I've lost my hope. I saw him die. And I ran away. And so Jesus comes. <laughs> Is this not remarkable? Look at this. Jesus comes just for Thomas. So that Thomas can see and believe too, because he wasn't there. Verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, (laughs) You imagine what Thomas is thinking and feeling, seeing Jesus? appeared to all of them, and then walking towards him and looking at him. Thomas, put your finger here. Right here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So much for Thomas's skepticism. Notice how Jesus puts it. Your finger, my hands. Your hand, my side. That sound familiar? He uses Thomas's own words of skepticism against him. Look at how Thomas put it a few verses 
earlier. Until I see the hands in the hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hands and place it in my side. Hey, I heard what you said. Even though I wasn't there, I know what you said. And that breaks Thomas's unbelief so that he now sees Jesus for who he is in verse 28 and confesses, my Lord and my God. But look at how Jesus responds to that confession, not only for Thomas, but for us. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? All the seeing is great. I'm happy that you're seeing me. And I'm happy that you believe because you see me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Oh, you think, you think the disciples are blessed because they could see and therefore believe? You think they're more blessed than you because they could believe after they saw? No, sir, not according to Jesus. Oh, you believe because you saw me. Blessed are those who believe without having seen. You, Christian, are more blessed than Thomas and the other 11, precisely because you have believed based on God's word without seeing. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It is a greater trust to trust what you hear than to trust what you see. It is a greater honor to be trusted for what you say than for what you show. That's the point of the whole book. Jesus blesses those who believe without seeing in verse 29. And to close out the scene and to bring the whole book to at least a preliminary conclusion, John invites us to believe what they saw without seeing it ourselves in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He did a lot of other things to show us. He did a lot of other things for people to see. Signs. But these are written, these are written not video recorded, written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You don't have to see it to believe it. You have to hear it and read it to believe it. And Jesus is more pleased when you read and believe, when you hear and believe, than when you see and believe. He said as much to Thomas. Isn't that true? In your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, you say something and you want it to be believed, do you not? And when people ask for proof, well, show me. How do I know? How do I know you? Honey, what if every time my wife went to the grocery store, I said, well, I'm going to put a tracker on your phone. Make sure you, you really are going to Aldi. Man, you can't have a relationship like that. And I'm dishonoring her by demanding that kind of proof. I'm telling her I think she's untrustworthy. 
And is it not the same with Jesus? Are you not telling him when he has given you 66 books of testimony to his death and resurrection to say, prove it? What John means by having life in his name there is the reality of sins forgiven, eternal fellowship with God through Jesus, starting now. That's what John wants for all of his readers. He's shown us all these signs Jesus did, climaxing in his physical resurrection from the dead, so that we would believe that God sent Jesus into the world as his only son to live the sinless life we should have lived, could not live, would not live. To die the death we deserve to die, to save us from going to the hell that we deserve for our sins, and to rise again for both his vindication and our vindication in him. He wants us to believe that about Jesus and about us. And he wants us to trust that he and the other disciples really did see the risen Jesus Christ just as he has said. So the point of this whole text, the point of the sermon, expositional preaching, the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. Here it is. Saving faith for life in Jesus rests on the disciples' eyewitness testimony, not ours. Saving faith for eternal life in Jesus rests on the apostles' eyewitness testimony, not our eyewitness testimony. The disciples' eyewitness testimony is the link that Jesus himself has authorized and empowered to elicit our faith in him. They saw, they saw, they saw, they saw, they saw, they saw. And now they testify in and through scripture so that we can trust Jesus. This is how our courtrooms still work, is it not? Evidence and eyewitness testimony. The disciples saw the stone was rolled away. Jesus' tomb was empty. His tomb is still empty. Even when the Jews stood to gain a lot with Pilate and Rome, had they produced the body if it were stolen? Hey, Pilate had a lot to gain from producing Jesus' body if it were stolen because then he could say, look, I really did kill him. I really did exercise faith to Caesar when I killed this claimant to the throne who was saying, I'm king of the Jews. I really killed him. I was faithful to Caesar. Pilate, Pilate had that to gain from producing the body, remember. And he didn't. The face cloth was folded. Mary saw the risen Christ. The other disciples saw the risen Christ. Doubting Thomas even saw the risen Christ. Why would anyone make up a story that creates loyalty to a crucified criminal who was deemed a traitor to the Roman state? I mean, that does not make any sense. If you're trying to have influence, if you want to win friends and influence people, this is not the way to do it. Like, this is not Dale Carnegie Christianity. 
Why put yourself in a position where you're trying to convince people you've seen a dead man rise from the dead and appear to you inside locked doors if that didn't happen? Like, is that something you want to do? Is that a lie you want to make up? Does that sound like something you would fabricate? I mean, your four-year-old wouldn't lie to you like that. That's a dumb lie to make up. In fact, there are no historical parallels to this kind of testimony about a dead man rising and then ascending to heaven to live forever. This is not normal. There aren't even any close mythical parallels in Greek mythology or Roman mythology. So either they saw all this with their own two eyes or they're lying through their teeth or they're out of their minds. But this is not the kind of sensational reporting or self-serving journalism that kind of lionizes or makes a hero out of those who are writing it. John's pretty transparent that even they themselves didn't know what to think at first. Mary thought somebody stole the body, just like many people still think today. That's what the Jewish soldiers told people to lie about at the end of Matthew's account. Read that. Just say somebody stole the body. Peter and John locked themselves in a room with the rest of the disciples for fear of being interrogated by the Jews. Not a flattering self-portrait. This is not a literary kind of chiseled physique memory of the disciples, you know? Like when, when the Greeks wanted to make statues of their heroes or when the Romans wanted to make statues of their emperors, it, it would be this kind of insanely ripped, jacked, you know, guy's got chest for days. That's how their statues were, even though that's probably not what they look like, you know. This is not a literary version of that for the disciples. They're not doing that for themselves or to themselves. I mean, Thomas was so skeptical, he wouldn't even associate himself with the other disciples that week. Again, this is not an airbrushed Facebook post or an Instagram pic showing you some carefully curated montage of their experience that makes you wish that you had their life. This is not what's going on. The risen Christ appeared to these people. Then he appeared to about 500 others, according to 1 Corinthians 15, It's their testimony that we believe, recorded in the documents of the New Testament, which, by the way, have a manuscript tradition far more reliable than any other from that period in history. They saw, they testified, they think we should believe their testimony. We in this church do believe their testimony. John's writing this so that you in the church would be more and more convinced, yeah, they really did see it. And what I believe, I'm not crazy to believe. Because they saw it. And they wrote about it. And that testimony has been preserved for 2,000 years. So I should not get cold feet. I should not be wimpy about my testimony to Jesus. Because they were not wimpy about it. I should persevere. I shouldn't quit. I shouldn't blend in. And we think... You should believe their testimony if you're an unbeliever, if you're still considering the claims of Christ. But if you do believe their testimony, if you believe these disciples of Jesus, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that they really did see him risen from the dead, then what does that faith in Jesus trust and do? What does faith in Jesus trust? What does faith in Jesus do? And those questions will guide the rest of our time together. What does faith in Jesus trust? Four things. 
Faith in Jesus trusts first in the reality and significance of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah. He is God's provision for our sins. To believe the message of the apostles is to believe that Jesus' death on the cross was not God's punishment for any sins that Jesus supposedly committed. It was God's punishment for the sins we have committed if we trust in him. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that he did not deserve to die as a criminal because the punishment didn't stick. So Jesus' death vindicated the Father's righteousness by punishing our forgiven sins in Jesus so that, Je- so that God the Father is not a pushover. He still did demand in his righteousness that the penalty for our sins be paid. So Jesus' death vindicated the Father's righteousness by punishing our forgiven sins in Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection vindicated Jesus' righteousness, proving that Jesus died as the penalty for our sins and that his condemnation was undeserved. As John put it, Jesus really is the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep and then he took it back up again in accordance with his father's will and plan because he was atoning for our sins, not his own sins. And that means Jesus really is the king of the Jews that he was crucified for being. He really is the son of God. This is real. This is real. The Bible is true. And your sins matter. And your faith matters. And this church matters. Christian faith then trusts the reality and abiding significance of Jesus' resurrection. This changes everything. Second, faith trusts the the apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament, in the documents. Jesus said, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, how are we supposed to believe in a risen Christ we have not seen? Well, we trust what the apostles said they saw as they recorded it in Scripture. We trust that Jesus sent the apostles into the world to preach. We believe the testimony of John's gospel and the rest of the New Testament documents as they testify to the saving significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Christian faith, then, is guided by what the apostles saw and what they wrote about what they saw and what that meant. These signs are written, John says, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These signs are written... They didn't just happen so that you would believe. They were written so that you would know that they happened so that you could believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is not just a guru, is not just a life coach, that he is Christ, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. Hmm? 
That's why the whole New Testament was written by authorized, chosen apostles of Jesus as his official, personal representatives. They testify to the meaning of who Jesus is and what he did in history so that we can be reconciled to the true and living God. Look, why do you think Christians make such a big deal of the Bible? It's not because we're trying to commit bibliolatry. It's because we really believe it's written by prophets and apostles who actually knew what they were talking about and experienced these things. This is the link. This is it. The New Testament is written by people who saw this stuff. They testify to the meaning of who Jesus is and what he did in history so that we can be reconciled to the true and living God. Now listen, everybody wants to make sure, well, how could I know that this really happened? I mean, I want to believe in history. Well, that's kind of the problem with history, is it not? It only happens once. You can't have it both ways, man. You can't be like, well, I want something to be historical. I want my faith to be historical and real. And then be like, yeah, but in order for me to believe it, Jesus has to appear to me like he appeared to them. No, that's not how history works, man. I understand that the phrase history repeats itself. We understand what that means. But in this sense, history does not repeat itself. The events of history are unrepeatable. The Son of God cannot keep on repeating his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection for every single generation, world without end. It's enough that he did it once. That's what makes it history. And therefore, he commissioned his apostles to witness to it in history, or to witness it in history as it happened, and then to witness to it in Scripture. The apostles witnessed that it happened, and now they're witnessing to the fact that it happened. They witnessed it when it happened, and now they witness that it happened and what it means that it happened in Scripture. That's how history works. The advantage that we have for faith in Jesus, though, is that this history of Jesus was witnessed before it ever even happened. And so... Thirdly, faith not only trusts in the apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament, faith also trusts the prophetic witness to Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament. That's what John is critiquing himself for not doing in verse 9. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture. What Scripture? The Old Testament that he must first rise from the dead. Ah, you didn't understand that the scripture was saying that Jesus must rise from the dead. So John is looking back and critiquing his own need to see the empty tomb and the folded linen cloth in order to believe. The reason he needed to see it in the first place, though, is that he did not understand the prophetic witness to the necessity of the Messiah's physical resurrection from the Old Testament. From the Old Testament. Immediately then, we notice the phrase, the Scripture. And we tend to ask, which one? Which Scripture? Was it that he didn't understand Abraham receiving Isaac as if back from the dead on Mount Moriah was a type of the 
resurrection of Jesus? Did he not understand Isaiah 53? Did he not understand Hosea 6.2? Did he not understand jo- Jonah rising from the belly of the fish as a type of the Christ's resurrection? Or maybe Psalm 16, which we had read earlier in the service, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Did they not understand that? Those particular ones? Which scripture did you not understand? Well, that's just it. John doesn't say. But that makes you think that when he says the scripture, he means the whole scripture taken together as one. The whole thing, Genesis to Malachi, witnesses to the necessity of Jesus' resurrection. Isn't that exactly how Jesus himself talked about it on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, starting with the prophets? He interpreted to them all the things pertaining to him in the scriptures. Moses wrote of me, not just Isaiah. So the whole thing, Genesis to Malachi, witnesses to the necessity of Jesus' resurrection, but in a way that even John didn't understand until Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So whether it's specific people or verses like we just mentioned, or whether it's general resurrection patterns like creation and new creation, Generation and regeneration. The pattern of Genesis 2-7 and Ezekiel 37-9. Or slavery and exodus from slavery. Or exile and return. Or suffering and then restoration. We should read all those Old Testament patterns through the lens of the New Testament's witness to Jesus' resurrection. That's what John didn't understand how to do until Jesus explained it to him after the resurrection. Friend, what all this means is that if you have Scripture, if you have the 66 books of the New Test- Old Testament New Testament, you have all you need in order to trust in Jesus right here. It is sitting on your shelf at home. He's already given it to you. You don't need to see Jesus in person in order to trust him. You only need to see Jesus in Scripture to trust him. The apostles witness to Jesus' resurrection when it happened helps you to believe that it happened. And the the prophets witness to Jesus' resurrection before it happened, confirms that you should believe the apostles' testimony to Jesus' resurrection in Scripture after it happened. You see? I'm going to repeat that. The apostles' witness to Jesus' resurrection when it happened in history helps you to believe that it happened. In other words, you know it happened because they saw it happen and they record that they saw it happen. And the prophet's witness to Jesus' resurrection before it happened helps you to believe that the apostles are really telling the truth that they witnessed it when it happened because the prophets were witnessing to it before it happened and then the apostles saw it happen and everything's consistent. Fourth, faith trusts that Jesus really does hold the keys to death in the grave. 
That's how John puts it elsewhere in Revelation 1.18. Christian faith does not simply trust that Jesus will make our lives in this world better. That might be true in some cases, but it's also true that to trust him is to take up our cross and follow him in this life. We go to him outside the gate, remember from last week, to bear the reproach that he endured. But what gives us courage and perseverance to go to him outside the gate in the first place is that our faith has united us to Jesus, not only in his death to sin, but also in his resurrection to eternal life. So we trust that when we die, Jesus will raise our dead bodies and transform them to become like his resurrection body, unable to die, unable to sin. That's a wonderful hope. And if you trust that Jesus' resurrection unites you to him, that your faith unites you to his resurrection so that you will one day be unable to die and unable to sin, what can you not endure in this life to get to that life? What is not worth it? Nothing. He will come back and unlock our graves and reconstitute our bodies to be like his body. He will come to us and he will overcome for us all that death had taken away from us. What is sown in the ground, the Christian's body in Christian burial, 1 Corinthians 15, is perishable, corruptible, decomposable. But what is raised with Christ to new life is imperishable, immortal, incorruptible, just like Jesus' resurrection body. And that, incidentally, this is a big parenthesis, that incidentally is what Christian burial signifies. Our hope that Jesus will raise our bodies from the dead. So we are planted or buried in dishonor in order to be raised to glory. 1 Corinthians 15. We are sown or buried or planted in weakness, but we are raised in power. The body is sown or planted or buried, a natural body in Christian burial, but it is raised, a spiritual body, in the resurrection on the last day. So that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, is the reason Christians have traditionally been buried rather than cremated. The burial of a Christian does not simply symbolize that we were formed from dust and to dust we return as God told Adam in the curse. It does symbolize that, but it's more. Christian burial also symbolizes our planting of our bodies like a seed in the ground in hopes of being raised up to new and everlasting life. I wish this was preached at every graveside service of every Christian. It is the Christian's burial. Christian burial is the final act, the Christian's final act of defiance against death and a post-mortem witness that this mortal body must put on immortality. And because of Jesus' resurrection, I will be bar- because of his resurrection, I personally will be buried, not cremated. And my tombstone will read, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And if, the incor- if incorruptible immortality is in my eternal future, then I can endure anything with Christ in the present on my way there. And so can you. Now, what does faith in Jesus do? Quickly. What does faith in Jesus do? Four things. Faith unites us, first of all, to Jesus in his resurrection by the indwelling of the Spirit. Christian faith 
does more than just affirm a proposition. Faith is what unites us to Jesus spiritually and experientially. Faith in Jesus is how we express the idea of abiding in Christ as a branch remains in the vine. It's how we live the new life of God's spirit, which he has given us. When Jesus breathed on the disciples to give them his spirit, that was a symbol of the new creation given to them. As God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2, so God breathed new spiritual life into his disciples in verse 22 of John 20. And as the preaching of God's word through Ezekiel summoned the breath of life to enter the reconstituted bodies of the Israelites in Ezekiel's vision so that they lived and stood on their feet in exceeding the great army, so Jesus breathed new life into his disciples by his word and by the spirit of God who raised him from the dead. And so today, when the preaching of God's word is accompanied by God's spirit who breathed out that word, then his spirit enters into our hearts and unites our hearts to Jesus by faith from now on. And we are united to him first in his death to sin. We were buried with him by baptism or identification with him into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We walk in newness of life. We live a whole new quality of life in this world now, Romans 6.4, because we are united to Jesus' death to sin and resurrection to new life. Your sanctification is inescapably Christological and theological. It is not just moral. And if all this is true of us, then we have the evidence already that we will be raised with him in his resurrection to new and eternal life in the last day, Romans 6, 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, death to sin, to sin's power and penalty, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you're not united to Christ in his death to sin, you're not united to Christ in his resurrection to eternal life. You can't have one without the other. You want to be raised from the dead? Die with Christ first. Then you will be raised with him. So friend, who are you trusting to make you right with God? Yourself? Your spouse? You want to be saved or sanctified by association with your godly husband or wife? Or with this church? Or with your friends? None can do it but the crucified and risen Christ. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. Second, faith testifies publicly and powerfully to Jesus' resurrection as Jesus testified publicly to the Father. Verses 21 and 22. The mission of the local church is not simply to make friends with each other and hunker down and hope to avoid getting outed as Christians. Our mission is to testify publicly to Jesus' resurrection, to make disciples of all the nations, to proclaim Jesus to others, to try to persuade them to believe about Jesus, what the apostles witnessed about Jesus, and not to get tired of doing that. As the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. He said that to the disciples, and through them, he says it to us today as believers in Christ and as a church together. To testify to the truth of something, though, is different than imposing your faith on somebody else. Testifying and imposing are different. When an eyewitness stands and gives testimony in court, you don't complain by saying, oh, they're imposing their view of reality on me and this whole courtroom. Make them stop. You don't say that. You accept that testimony or you reject it but the witness is simply trying to persuade you to believe that what they saw happen really did happen the way they saw it happen and the way they're testifying to it now you can you can take that or leave it 
But they're not imposing anything on you. They're just testifying. And that's how we as Christians want unbelievers to think about us and our testimony to Christ in the court of public opinion. That's how we should think of our own testimony to Christ. So we don't get confused and start thinking, oh, evangelism is just imposing my view on somebody else. No, it's not. You're bearing testimony. They can take it or leave it. Our responsibility is not to coerce or even to convince anybody. We simply testify to the truth of the apostles' witness to Jesus in Scripture and then to the reality of the risen Christ who has united us to himself by faith and given us new life in him. We testify to the, to the Christ of the Bible. And we testify to what he has done in our lives. That's it. That's evangelism. We call other people to repent of their sins as we have been called to repent of ours. And this faith that we have testifies not only publicly but powerfully. Jesus breathed his spirit on his first disciples and he breathed his spirit on his 21st century churches today. That's to equip us for living faithful, holy, compelling lives that testify to the spiritual and historical significance of Jesus' resurrection. No one believes Christian preaching until the spirit of God makes the word of God persuasive to the enemies of God. Only then. Do we see conversions? That's why we gather to pray together on Sunday nights to ask God to lend his power and his spirit to make our testimony to Jesus clear, convincing, and compelling in a way that we can't make it clear, convincing, and compelling. Only he can do that. But faith does testify. Mary Magdalene testified to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. The disciples testified to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And now the church testifies to the world. We have believed the testimony of the apostles. We have tasted and seen for ourselves that the Lord is good to us in Christ. He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness to those who fear him. And he loves all those who take him at his word in the good news of Christ crucified and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what faith does, Christian. It testifies. If your faith isn't testifying, it's not faith. This is what faith should be doing in you. As the Father sent Jesus, so he sends us. There is not a disciple that he doesn't send. He accepts you in order to send you. So where are you going with the gospel. Who are you going to in order to testify to them? We want to see conversions in this church, but a desire for conversions without a commitment to evangelism is a pipe dream. How are they going to believe? We are called to go. So who will you go to with a kind and clear testimony to the gospel? Three, faith commemorates Jesus' resurrection by treating every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday. Mary Magdalene went to be with Jesus at his tomb on the first day of the week in verse 1. That same evening, first day of the week, the disciples were all gathered together when Jesus appeared to them for the first time. That pattern of gathering on the first day of the week continued in Acts 27, 20 verse 7, where Paul gathered with the disciples in Troas at the first day of the week to break bread, to talk together. That's when Paul extended his discourse until midnight. And dear brother Eutychus fell out the window. Look it up. We don't stay here till midnight. 
Paul assumes that the church at Corinth meets together on Sunday when he tells them in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up for the collection Paul was taking to relieve the saints who are enduring the famine at Jerusalem. And John himself is in the spirit on the Lord's Day in exile on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.10. Christian faith commemorates Jesus' resurrection by treating every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday. That weekly rhythm reminds us that Christ is risen. And that changes everything. We'll remember, though, that Thomas was not with the disciples when they were gathered that first Lord's Day in John 20. We don't know, we don't know why he wasn't there. I mean, he could have just been grocery shopping, doing errands. But his skepticism is the most likely answer, is it not? He just didn't believe. But he missed out on seeing Jesus that day and getting the Spirit that day. J.C. Ryle, old dead Anglican, faithful pastor, said that we should learn from Thomas's absence how much Christians may lose by not regularly attending the assemblies of God's people. That is a dear admonition. Thomas missed church that day, and he missed revival, literally. Thomas was absent the first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, Ryle says, and consequently he missed a blessing. And Ryle goes on from there to cite Hebrews 10.25, don't neglect the assembling of of yourselves together. See, I'm not the only one who can get to church membership and church attendance from anywhere in Scripture. J.C. Ryle can do it too. He goes on and says this, Never to be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason. Never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation. Never to let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. End quote. Now I quote that not to quote it at you, not to guilt you into attempting perfect attendance in 2023, but to entice you to see that gathering together on the Lord's Day is gathering with Christ himself. This is not just social. This is not just horizontal. This is vertical. And I quote it to show you that modern evangelicals are not nearly the first to call you to faithful observance of the Lord's Day. Ryle was a 19th century Anglican, and I quote it to you so that you will see that when you are absent from our gatherings, you are both missed by us and you miss out on meeting together with Christ himself, who's the first guy the apostles ran to tell when they saw Jesus in that room. They told Thomas, Thomas, man, you should have been there. You should have been with us. Where were you? Thomas let his doubt and skepticism and sullenness and sorrow convince him to stay away from the gathering of the disciples. But what Thomas needed was not alone time. Thomas needed church. Because that's where Christ wanted to meet him. And that's where Christ wants to meet you. This is the place that you are supposed to bring your sorrows and your doubts. 
because the risen Christ wants to meet with you here by his spirit in the fellowship of the saints under the preaching, praying, singing, and reading of his word because there is strength in numbers. So don't let your sorrows and disappointments or even your doubts keep you from coming to this place when you know we are gathered together. Fourth and finally, faith discerns right professors of right faith. Jesus tells his disciples, John 20, 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven him. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. The idea there is the same as Matthew 16, 18. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That power and authority is given to the gathered church in Matthew 18. Jesus delegates his authority to the gathered local church for affirming biblical statements of Christian doctrine, for affirming the faith of those who believe such doctrine, and those who live in line with the Bible's ethic as the apostles taught it. This is what we're doing every time we're signing a statement of faith to enter a church or preaching the gospel or affirming the faithful preaching of the gospel or critiquing unfaithful preaching. It's what we're doing when we're hearing Christian testimonies of those who want to join the membership of the local church. It's what we're doing when we have to periodically take people off the rolls of the church due to unrepented sin or prolonged non-attendance. It's what we're doing when we baptize new believers. It's what we're doing when we serve the Lord's Supper to those who are members in good standing. All this is Christian faith discerning right statements of faith right professions of faith, and righteous professors of the right faith. But we do that, again, not based on our own word, but based on the apostle's word, which is commissioned and authorized by the risen Christ himself here in John 20. Now, if you're an unbeliever listening to all this, we hope you understand that that to read the New Testament documents as they testify to Jesus, and then to tell the apostles from across the centuries that they didn't see what they saw would be like gaslighting them across all space and time. You didn't see that. Well, they're saying they did see it. No, you didn't see that. Yes, they did. Who are you to tell these men that they did not see what they saw? There's very little reason to doubt all this. As if you're accusing them of ulterior motives or lying or just being out of their minds. They saw the evidence first. They saw the stone rolled away. They saw the grave clothes lying there. They saw the folded face cloth. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the Lord Jesus himself. They saw his pierced hands and his wounded side. Even the most skeptical of them saw him, touched him, worshiped him as God. And now, friend, it is your turn. Look at their eyewitness testimony. What do you see? Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you for the reliable testimony of the prophetic witness to Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament and the apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament. We pray that our faith would trust the reality and significance of his resurrection and we would testify to it faithfully. For Jesus' sake, amen.